0: Greetings fellow time travellers, as always I'm delighted to have you with me for this uh, endless, endless journey through space and time. Uh, before I start today's episode I want to say, as I always do, thank you to everyone who is supporting this podcast series that Paul and I do together, supporting it financially by signing up to my patreon.com site. Uh, it is that. It's that support that makes all of the podcasts possible. The love letters that have been and always will be free, that's that's because of the Patreon support. Uh, if you're a member. A thousand thanks. Uh, If you're not a member yet and you'd like to join and become part of the family of inquiring minds, curious types, history lovers, uh, people who want to speculate about the significance of the past in relation to the present and the future, go to patreon.com, search for me by name, part with a bit of cash, and get access to the exclusive content, question and answers, all the rest of it, competitions from time to time. Uh, Just become part of the family. Okay, that's the advert complete for another week. Time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder. Microphone. Action. Prophecy stalks the streets of this great city. Formidable double-walled defences have protected it for centuries. But treachery? or a fatal mistake allows thousands of enemy warriors to breach the fortifications and pour inside, fulfilling a prophecy that was made hundreds of years before. The Byzantine capital's direct line of descent, stretching back 2,000 years to the classical world of Athens and Rome, is cut with an Ottoman scimitar. East is east, west is west, and nothing, nothing will ever be the same again endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil, last week you took us to Germany to meet the man who kickstarted a new information revolution which turned the world on its head. Where are we this week? Hi Paul, yes, last week uh, it was all about Johannes Gutenberg. And his invention of the printing press and movable type and all of that, all of that innovation. He detonated a technological time bomb then that has had a profound and f- far reaching effect on our species. This week, the date in question is 1453, and we're about to reel under the impact of another seismic shock, but this time it's about territory. The Christian Byzantine Empire has been in slow decline for centuries, but now it's crunch time. An Ottoman army led by Sultan Mehmet II is at the gates of Constantinople and the world's map is about to be redrawn. We're in Constantinople for our purposes, because that was historically what that city was called. It's now Istanbul, which is not the political capital of Turkey, but I suppose the cultural heart of Turkey is Istanbul. But for the longest time, It was Constantinople, and this particular love letter deals with that moment, that moment when Constantinople, as it had been, became something else, which is the Istanbul that it has been ever since. In the early hours of the 29th of May, 1453, the city of Constantinople had been under siege for nearly two months. Constantinople was a Christian city. It was the beating heart of the Christian empire of Byzantium and it had, it had stood for a thousand years or the better part thereof. But there'd been a two month siege and then early on the morning of the 29th of May 1453, something happened. And to this day, it's not entirely clear how that happening happened. Constantinople sat behind massive, on the landward side, it was protected by the sea on two sides, but then it was protected by an enormous set of walls on the landward side. That was where the besieging Muslim army had sat for a couple of months. And they'd been holding them at bay because Constantinople had been besieged countless times and had always triumphed. But on this particular occasion, one of the gates through the walls, the gate of St Romanus, and somehow or other it was open. Now, was it breached by some offensive attack by the Muslim force or, or had it been left open? And if it had been left open, was it left open by accident, by some exhausted defender or other, or was it opened by a traitor, someone within? Well, to this day, it's not clear. That in any event, at that moment, on the 29th of May, 1453, into Constantinople swept the first of a massive, an almost unimaginably large Muslim army. It had been a long siege and the people within were, well, at their wits' end, basically. They were starving, they were, they'd been bombarded relentlessly... Uh, The Muslim army had brought heavy guns, heavy siege cannon, and they'd been pounding the city for weeks on end. There was great tension within. And finally, on realising that a gate had opened and that the enemy was within, the spirit of the citizens within broke and a great wailing and a gnashing of teeth. The sound of, of thousands of people cast into grief and terror all at the same moment filled the air... The Emperor of the Byzantine Empire was Constantine Palaiologos, in Christ, true Emperor and Autocrat of the Romans, you know, to give him his Sunday name. He was the figurehead. He was the Emperor. He was the, the leader to whom everyone looked. And he was elsewhere in the city with some of what remained of his fighting force. It had been much smaller than the Muslim army without to begin with, but it had been severely reduced by the months of siege. But there he was and he, they, they and he heard the cries and looked up and they looked from where they were in the city to the sound, to where the sound was coming from and it was the gate of St Romanus. And there they saw the banners, the little pennants and flags of the leader of the Muslim army who was the Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II. He was the leader of the opposing force. His flags started to appear from the gate of St Romanus, it looked like it would be like sparks from a fire or little tongues of flame, you know, being blown on the wind and they were catching all over the city from high point to high point. And so this was the worst. This was the potentially the worst starting to happen. And as he had done countless times before in, in keeping his men together and keeping morale high, he, he shouted out to the men around him to stay strong and to take the fight to the enemy and whatever. But this time, this time, they broke The defenders, although they were being encouraged and and urged to fight on by the emperor himself, they broke and the rout began. And they decided, like all the rest of the citizens within the city, that they would try and get away. Obviously, the attacking force is coming in from the landward side, but Constantinople was very much a port city. And so there was this general run by the citizens and now by the surviving defenders to try and get to the water and to maybe, you know, jump aboard a ship, you know, the last helicopter out of Saigon type situation. So they break and they ran. And what happens to Constantine is legend, really. But he is last seen, according to the legend, up on the battlements. So he's up on the, on the wall of Theodosius. He's at another gate. The enemy have come in through the gate of St Romanus, but he's thought to be beside the gate of St Sophia. And he had been wearing his imperial military garb so that he was recognisable to to the men all around him. But he seems to have taken that off so that he was basically just dressed as a plain soldier, like a private in the army. And he took a sword from the the dead hand of a defender up on the battlements. And he stood on the top of the wall. You know, it's many metres high and below him were the massed ranks of the Muslim army in their thousands, in their tens of thousands. And he leapt, he leapt out with sword in hand and dropped like a like a raindrop into an ocean. And he was never seen again. Uh, later that day, Mehmet, Mehmet II, the, the sultan of the Ottoman Muslim army, the besieging force, he paraded a severed head on a spear and he, you know, he walked it amongst these people, and he said it was the head of Constantine. But was it? Did that ever happen? As I say, all of that is best left to legend. But in any event, no trace, no other trace of uh, Constantine Palaiologos, uh, in Christ, true emperor and autocrat of the Romans, emperor of Constantinople, was ne- he'd never seen again. He disappeared without a trace at that point. So that's, that's the moment. So we should probably fill in some backstory. It's fair to say that prophecy had always walked the streets of Constantinople. Uh, it was a different world. You have to sort of try and put yourself back into a different mindset. You know, these were people uh, devoutly religious. They believed, you know, they believed in the, the imminence of God and the, and the saints and And so it was a place steeped in myth and 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 ritual and all the color and ceremony of the Orthodox Christian faith. It was like an epicenter of it and and in that in that almost unimaginably different religious atmosphere, prophecy was always there. Constantinople was named uh, for Emperor Constantine the who we 've met before. He was the same Constantine who was proclaimed emperor by his father 's army at York in England and then went on to establish himself in the years ahead as the one and only Roman emperor. And he it was who moved the capital of his empire from Rome in Italy to a new city. He built or he he took over an existing port in Byzantium and it was named Constantinople in his honor. And the, the prophecy had always predicted that the city would rise and fall under an emperor of the same name. So having been founded by a Constantine, it would fall under a Constantine, and here it was, here it was happening. But it was a city with a a long, long history. Going back into the 4th century AD, subsequent to Constantine, another emperor, Theodosius II, commissioned the great defensive wall and it wasn't just one wall it was a it was a set of walls one after the other with great ditches and you know also a multi-valley defense named the wall of theodosius because of the emperor who who summoned it into being to give you a sense of the place constantinople sits at the tip of a triangular peninsula of land at the point where europe and asia are separated only and barely by a thin strip of water called the bosphorus This narrow strip of water was was really where the two continents of Europe and Asia came close enough to kiss, but not quite. So the apex of the triangle, you you would say, is formed by two bodies of water, the Sea of Marmara and also the Golden Horn, which is a a narrower strip of water. And if you look at it, kind of half squint your eyes at the the shape of it on a map? It always reminds me of the head of a hippopotamus or, or maybe the head of a rhino, some sort of blunt snout a uh, sort of sniffing towards the Bosphorus. And then across the neck, like a collar, I suppose, across the neck of the hippo, was the wall of Theodosius. It appeared to that medieval world, and to, and to some extent the, the ancient world before it, as somewhere that was simply permanent. You know, by 1453, it had always been there, like a mountain range or some other natural feature. And there was an assumption that it would just always be there. It would that no matter what, it, it would prevail. And so history, the history of the East and the history of the West was marbled through the city of Constantinople, you know, like fat through good beef. It was just history all the way down. By 1453, I mentioned it being through multiple sieges. In fact, more than 30, more than 30 armies had come and had a go because they thought they were hard enough. And, and always they had been turned back by the wall, by the rest of the defences, by the Sea of Marmara, by the Golden Horn and all the rest of it, but more than anything else, because for the best part of a thousand years, the citizens of Constantinople believed in themselves. They believed in their own indomitability and in their own permanence in the scheme of things. Like I say, it was history all the way. Remember earlier in the Love Letter to the World, we talked about how in 800, the Pope in Rome made an emperor of Charlemagne, Big Charlie, so that was 800 AD but everybody everybody kind of knew that it was in Constantinople in the east that the autocrat of the romans held sway that role had been there longer you know so even even 800 AD and charlemagne yeah call yourself emperor if you want and maybe you are but you're emperor in the west the emperor in the east it is the continuation of something much older much deeper and when i say it's marbled you know we've touched on events related to Constantinople already. In 1071, the Battle of Manzikert, you remember, where a Christian force for the first time was defeated by a Muslim force. That had never happened until 1071. And that was another moment when the tectonic plates shifted and Western Christendom was, was forced to accept the reality that East and Islam could take them. You know, And once that had happened, it's like running the four-minute mile for the first time. Once someone shows it can be done, then it keeps on happening. In 1204, the climax of the Fourth Crusade unfolded in Constantinople. For want of any ability to actually get into the Holy Land and do what a crusade is supposed to do, the crusaders of the Fourth Crusade in 1204, they turned on the people of Constantinople. And they sacked the city. And they murdered and they raped and the streets ran red with blood. And this was Christian on Christian. You know, it was an appalling sin in every sense of the word. In the the aftermath of of that fall in 1204, the Empire, the, the Byzantine Empire, was shared out amongst the Crusaders. But even so, even that appalling wrong, that atrocity having been committed, Constantinople prevailed. There behind the wall, Constantinople still understood itself. And still prevailed a bit like an impacted wisdom tooth that you know that nobody could dig out. Just half a century later, 1261 to be precise, the, the Byzantine Empire was actually restored. Five decades after that atrocity, it, it was pulled back together again. It was diminished by that point, and it was different, but nonetheless, it had been restored like a, a sponge or something, a living a, organic that can be cut up and then it you know it manages to pull itself back together again. So the Byzantine Empire did by 1261. So it's, 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 an because it's where East meets West, because of its long history, it had tendrils and spider's web connections going out all over the place. In the early 10th century, we've mentioned this in the love letter as well, the Tang dynasty of China had fallen after a long period of dominance. And as that dynasty fell, it, dominoes toppled. There's one domino fell, it, it pushed people in all sorts of directions. And so out of Central Asia at that time had come, amongst others, the Oghuz Turks. They were displaced because other people, after the Tang dynasty fell, people moved and they, they felt pressure from the outside, and, and so the Oghuz Turks moved from their traditional heartland in Central Asia. And so they were they were one of those peoples on the move. And within them was the Seljuk clan. Uh, and, and also out of the Ogos came an individual called Osman. He was a prince among his people, a Ghazi. So Osman became the father of the Ottoman clan. And it was Ottoman Turks, Ottoman Turks ultimately that produced Mehmed II, who was the Sultan who successfully besieged Rome in 1453. But, you know, at that point, all of that still lay ahead. So you've got Osman, the father figure of the Ottoman clan. One of his successors was Bajazet I who called himself the Sultan of Rome because he aspired to command Constantinople. You know, he had, he had his eyes on it, you know, back in that, in that period. This is already the early part of the 15th century. Badges it, the I himself put a siege in front of the walls of Constantinople. But he also, as it turned out, he made the, the grotesque mistake of declaring to the world at large that he was the greatest Khan, the greatest king, really on the planet and word of his boast reached the ear of an individual called Timur the Lame possibly more likely to be remembered as Tamerlane Uh, and Timur the Lame or Tamerlane was the last of the great Mongol Khans and he understood himself to be the greatest king of all time and he demanded that Bajazet face him in battle you know come on then if you think you're so special come and face me and that battle happened at Ankara in 1402 and by god Timur the Lame showed Badgeset who was boss. It was a complete rout of Badgeset's army. Badgezit tried to flee the field, but he was captured and he was brought before Timur the Lame. And according to the legend, he spent the next 20 years in a cage that Timur the Lame pulled behind his dogs as the lowest of the low. That's another legend that may or may not have happened, but that's the way history remembers the fate of an individual like the I. There had been a great schism, a great split in Christianity centuries before. What prevailed in the East was the Orthodox version of Christianity, which for the record really considers itself to be, as as Orthodox says, the right and the only right version of Christianity. Western Christianity under the Pope in Rome was something different. And so there was a lingering antipathy and animosity between the Christians of the West and the Christians of the East. And so for the long centuries, during which Constantinople was increasingly under pressure from Islamic forces, amongst others, Christendom in the West was content to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the struggles and the predicament of Constantinople. So they were they were isolated and alone. They'd been there for a thousand years, but by 1453, those Eastern Christians were increasingly isolated. Mehmed, who was an Ottoman Turk, so descended from that same Osman, you know, that father of the Ottoman clan, Mehmed II, he was 21 years old when he brought the biggest army yet in front of the wall of Theodosius. Uh, uniquely, though, he had brought heavy guns, heavy artillery, massive, massive bronze cannon, some of them apparently big enough that a man could kind of crouch inside the mouth. Colossal things, and they fired great stone balls. So he brought them in front of the wall of Theodosius and it was with these that he had bombarded the city for, for two months until that moment came, that mentioned at the top, when the door of St Romanus was left open. Now, well, it, let, let's, you know, give the devil his due. Maybe that Muslim force managed to break through that door or, or or it was left open by accident or it was left open by a traitor within. Who knows? In any event, in the aftermath of that, the thousand-year-old city of Constantinople fell. It meant that 2,000 years, really, of direct descent from the traditions of classical Greece and then of Rome and the Romans, in 1453, that was cut, so to speak, with an Ottoman sword, an Ottoman scimitar. It meant that, although many people tried to escape, 50,000 people at least were taken captive and sold into slavery uh, by the Turks, 50,000 Christians. Uh, Saint Sophia... The church that had been commissioned by Justinian in 537 or dedicated by Justinian in 537 and had been the greatest church in Christendom, the same church that had so beguiled the Vikings, the Vikings that came and and tested the great monotheistic faiths and decided that Christianity was the one for them. You know, that transformative moment had happened to them inside Saint Sophia. Well, that great Christian church was transformed into a mosque the Aya Sophia that many people will have visited in, in Istanbul. Now, Istanbul, the etymology of that name is actually quite interesting in itself. It may be a corruption of Istanpoli, which is uh, would be a Latinate form of into the city, so that people people on their way towards Constantinople, where are you going, Istanpoli, into the city? And that, that may have been a, a, a word that was floating about and became, you know, sort of crystallised as Istanbul once it was taken over by the by the Ottoman Turks. But there you go, this is a, this is a, one of those moments. It's one of those moments when everything changed. With the fall of Constantinople in 1453, east was east and west was west and nothing would ever be the same again. In 1493, Christopher Columbus sails back to the Americas Bringing a precious cargo with them, the horse. Returning to the continent it once roamed thousands of years ago before becoming extinct. This equine engine which was helping to power the rest of the world was now back. If the indigenous peoples saw trouble ahead from the two-legged incomers, they were quick to see the positive potential of those with four. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. You can check out my Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel, simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book... It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc Podcasts production.